0: 18th season of the Public Lands Podcast, where we bring you updates, interviews, information, entertainment, and conversation about your public lands and waterways. My name is Mark Pedelty and I'll be your host today. Today I'm coming to you from Yellowstone National Park. Because this is the first podcast of the year, I'd like to set the stage for what's to come in the next four months. But first, I do want to say I'm recording all of this on an iPhone and a laptop. So if the quality is a little lesser than normally with the Zoom, I apologize. But I partly want to model for students how easy it is to produce your own podcast, including here in the field at Yellowstone National Park. So anyway, I'd like to set the stage for what's to come in the next four months because we're going to do things a little bit differently this year. First, although I am solely responsible for what happens on this podcast and is not officially connected to the University of Minnesota, this year I will more directly refer to a course that I teach, Communication 4250, Environmental Communication, a course that that enrolls students from throughout the university interested in environmental issues. For example, students in the course will produce four separate audio assignments about a public land site of their own choosing to help them out and give them one template for each of these assignments by a, no means the model, but a model that they can, that can help them think about these things. And I always kind of feel like I should uh, have to do what they do at some level. My first four weeks will be developed around each of these four assignments. The first being Discovery, in which I'll provide a brief introduction to the history, geology, and life in Yellowstone National Park. We'll be hearing that in a few minutes. The second assignment, and therefore my second week's podcast, moves from discovery to inquiry, an audio news report concerning a current environmental issue of interest in the student's adopted public land site. To model that project next week, I will discuss a controversial mining proposal near Yellowstone National Park's northern boundary. That report and and podcast will feature an interview with Jeff Reed of the Yellowstone Gateway Business Coalition, who does a wonderful job of representing their position on that issue. Uh, I've also tried to get a hold of the mining concessionaires um, who have not responded, but I will represent their position as presented in the environmental impact statements and other policy documents that were provided. The student's third assignment is about advocacy. They will choose to advocate for particular policy or regulatory action either directly involving or at least affecting their chosen park. For that one, I will discuss ongoing issues around snowmobile access in the national parks. The student's final audio assignment, due at the end of the semester, will be an interpretive talk. Listeners to the podcast in past years know that interpretation in this context refers to what rangers and volunteer staff do every day when teaching visitors about an interesting topic in natural history or human history related to or featured in the park that in which they work. In other words, a ranger talk. That episode, four weeks from now, will involve an in-depth tour of the Mammoth Hot Springs in Yellowstone National Park. Four weeks from now, after each of these podcasts has been posted, you'll be hearing from a range of guest reporters discuss various topics related to our public lands, along with my weekly news updates regarding issues and events affecting public lands across the country. So let's get started with the first podcast of the year from here at Yellowstone National Park. Before talking about Yellowstone, however, it's a good time to recap some of the biggest public land stories of 2017. Let's start with the good news. The environmental news service Mongabay published a list that they call the top 10 happy environmental stories of 2017. Let's take a look down that list. I'm going to deal with just a few of the stories that they list on the Munga Bay site, but I recommend that you go to it. It's it's sort of an uplifting thing to do, given all the negative stories we have coming out about about the environment every year, and particularly in this year, 2017. The first one they mention is new populations of rare wildlife that have been found around the world, such as the helmeted hornbill, an unexpectedly rich population in Borneo or the Guar's gorilla, a subspecies for which they had an undercount in Democratic Republic of Congo. And, for the first time ever, researchers were allowed into the Karen state of southeast Myanmar, which yielded record numbers of at least 31 species of mammals, including tigers, Asian elephants, and many others. And then there were those that were lost and found, species that were thought to be extinct but were rediscovered and chanced upon. For example, in Guatemala, the brilliantly colored Jackson's climbing salamander. Or a naturalist in India spotted an extremely rare cobra lily that had not been seen for nearly 80 years and was also thought to be extinct. Or Papua New Guinea, getting its largest ever conservation area. Something that in this age of the Anthropocene, the uh, Great Extinction, that as we hear constantly about the decline in biodiversity, I think there has to be a sort of celebration every time that land is set aside in various nations. And then another story that they note that I'm going to be talking about a little bit later is that of a subnational delegation bypassing Trump and committing to keeping America's goals for the Paris Agreement that includes cities and various businesses. Indigenous land rights were granted to several communities around the world, including in Indonesia and Brazil. And finally, one of the biggest stories of 2017 were the number of large marine reserves that were created, something that could be a watershed when we look back at 2017 in future years a difference in the way that the world community is starting to look at the oceans and our collective governance of them. For example, Chile announced a 740,000 square kilometer marine reserve around Easter Island, and Mexico greatly expanded its marine reserves. Those are just some of the uplifting stories from 2017. However, as anyone who's paid any attention knows, 2017 was a year of accelerated destruction of the commons, the public lands that we collectively steward for the sake of generations of humans and all the animals that cohabit our country. It would take far longer than one podcast to overview those issues, so here's a quick and cursory list. 2017 was marked by catastrophic hurricane damage in Texas, Florida, and Puerto Rico. And for the first time ever, the annual report of the American Meteorological Society, the AMS, concluded that the extremity of some weather events could not have been possible without the influence of human-caused climate change. The Trump administration withdrew the United States from the Paris Climate Agreement, which was signed by every nation except for Syria and Nicaragua, and with the latter two countries signing the agreement, only the USA has decided not to participate. However, many U.S. cities and businesses independently and collectively signed on to the agreement, including many within the We Are Still In campaign, hashtag we Are Still In. Trump and EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt announced that they would be rewriting the Clean Power Plan. As reported last year, most of those involved in setting those new policies, including Pruitt himself, represent the coal, gas, and oil industries. But most directly related to this podcast, the Trump administration's attack on public lands has continued as he signed executive orders taking land from the Bears Ears and Grand Staircase-Escalante National Monuments. Trump wants to reduce Bears Ears from 1.35 million acres to 228,000 acres and split it into two pieces. While dividing Grand Staircase Escalante into three sections, which in total will represent just half of its original land. And most recently, the Trump administration has announced that it will allow oil exploration and drilling in the Alaskan National Wildlife Refuge and is moving to expand offshore oil exploration and extraction, as well as less than a decade after the British petroleum oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. So given those developments, there is perhaps no better time to look at the nation's and indeed the world's very first national park, for a reminder of why this all matters. And for the students who are listening to the podcast, here's where I begin my discovery talk about Yellowstone National Park. Welcome to Yellowstone National Park in winter, I'm coming to you from the Mammoth Hot Springs. The springs are surrounded by billowing wisps of steam from hot water brought up from deep in the earth below. The hot water contains carbonic acid, dissolving limestone as it rises to the surface, creating odd, colorful formations across the surface. The limestone formations are different from most in the park, which are formed by silica dissolved from rhyolite. The mammoth hot springs formations look like melted birthday cakes piled atop one another, what some describe as a cave turned inside out featuring rock formations rarely seen on the surface of the earth. Magnificent as they are, the Mammoth Hot Springs are just a small part of what moved various congressmen, state legislators, newspaper editors, and other advocates to call for Yellowstone to become a national park, despite significant local opposition. On March 1st, 1872, after Congress passed legislation creating the park, Ulysses S. Grant signed the following Act of Law, the Act of Dedication. An act to set apart a certain tract of land lying near the headwaters of the Yellowstone River as a public park, be it enacted by the Senate and House of Representatives of the United States of America in Congress assembled, that the tract of land in the territories of Montana and Wyoming is hereby reserved and withdrawn from settlement, occupancy, or sail under the laws of the United States, and dedicated and set apart as a public park or pleasuring ground for the benefit and enjoyment of the people, and all persons who shall locate or settle upon or occupy the same or any part thereof, except as hereinafter provided, shall be considered trespassers and removed. Approved March first, eighteen seventy-two. And so, the first uh, world's first actually national park was created. Yellowstone, so named because the Yellowstone River flows through its center. Threats to Yellowstone from poachers, miners, loggers, and developers continued despite its designation as a national park, leading to the eventual establishment of Fort Yellowstone, an army protection for the park that lasted until 1918 when the new National Park Service took over Park Administration. Fast forwarding to 1978, the United Nations Educational, Scientific, and Cultural Organization, that we know as UNESCO, named Yellowstone a World Heritage Site, the USA's first such designated place. Of course, Yellowstone was around long before American fur trappers first laid sight of it. For at least the past 12,000 years, indigenous peoples have lived in or visited this sacred place. The Crow called it the Land of the Burning Ground. In fact, What we refer to generically as public lands is just one more method white colonists used to dispossess First Nations of their birthright. Shoshone families were literally expelled and forcibly excluded from Yellowstone when it was named a park. Nevertheless, Native American nations remain leaders and key stewards of America's public lands, as evidenced by the 26 associated tribes of Yellowstone Park. So what makes Yellowstone National Park so special? First, it is one of the largest supervolcanoes on Earth, last erupting over 600,000 years ago, leaving a caldera that is 45 to 55 miles from side to side in each direction. Past explosions radically altered the world climate and blanketed much of Western North America in ash. And of course, it will happen again. That's often on the minds of visitors and even park staff. In an essay from the book, The Wonder of It All, 100 Stories from the National Park Service, an entertaining book that I highly recommend, a National Park Service scientist who conducts research on a type of specialized buckwheat that grows around the thermal vents in Yellowstone, Daniel Winkler, admits thinking to himself, what if today is the day? Whether today, tomorrow, or millennia from now, no one knows. What we do know is that the hot magma below the surface of Yellowstone has produced a landscape like no other, with water heating up to 400 degrees Fahrenheit to produce geysers, thermal pools, fumaroles, which are thermal vents in the earth, mud pots and rock formations that are windows into geological processes deep inside the earth. In addition to Old Faithful, the geyser that I think most people know about the best, and if you do go to Old Faisal, you'll enjoy it with a cast of thousands of people from around the world that will marvel at it. But I also recommend walking into some of the geysers that have far fewer visitors, uh, geysers that very few see and you can even see on your own in the backcountry. Uh, one of these, for example, is Lone Star, and Ge- Lone Star Geyser. You hike in a few miles, wait for it, and it's well worth the wait. Although the landscape is decidedly atypical, Much of Yellowstone National Park's flora and fauna are typical of biodiverse ecosystems that were once far more widespread around the West. Without such preserves, we would never be able to directly experience large herds of bison and elk shadowed by packs of gray wolves, the lodgepole pines that blanket up to 80% of the park, and many other endemic animals and plants, once widespread, now isolated in relatively small patches of green on the map of the West. Yellowstone is one of the largest of our national parks, 3,472 square miles in all, mostly in northwestern Wyoming. Testament to what people can do when they decide to steward the commons well. No wonder that over four million people visited Yellowstone in 2017 to camp, hike, fish, climb, ski, watch the wildlife, and snowshoe, which is exactly what I did this morning while exploring the Mammoth Hot Springs area. Yet Like all such magical places, Yellowstone National Park faces several threats, not the least of which is its incredible and growing popularity with American visitors and tourists from around the world who make the pilgrimage to see this World Heritage Site, a reminder that ultimately the land, water, and wildlife know no nationality. Unfortunately, with millions of visitors each year, we are starting to love it to death, raising serious questions concerning not only how many should visit, but how we should visit and use the park. I'll explore that question more in a few weeks when discussing snowmobile access policies. For now, suffice it to say that the biggest challenge for the 330 National Park staff who work in Yellowstone year-round is making sure that people learn, enjoy, and respect the park. In addition to visiting Yellowstone for the sake of this and the next three podcasts, I wanted to provide a small glimpse into the life and work of the many public servants and private concession employees who make the park work for us and for all of the animal and plant communities that live here year-round which they steward on our behalf. Among those I talked to on this visit uh, briefly was Ranger Joe Beter. I asked Joe what he enjoys most about Yellowstone in the winter and he had this to share. Being able to go out for a ski after work, even if it's getting a little dark, um, at least at night, you know, there's, the, there's enough illumination, and, and we can finish our ski under the stars, and it's just uh, a great way to end the day. He Joe shares that passion with visitors to Mammoth Hot Springs on a daily basis. And let's not forget that many others who steward Yellowstone on our behalf, including for the concessions that work the park, people like Cody Bundich, who had this to say about his experience in the winter at Yellowstone. The quiet, the solitude, if you tell anybody about this, it's not going to be that anymore. (laughs) All joking aside, Cody and I talked about the double consciousness many of us have regarding special places like Yellowstone, wanting to experience the quietude and solitude of our public lands, yet wanting to share that experience with family as well, friends, and all around the nation and world for whom this national park and world heritage site is a sacred place to be enjoyed, cherished, and preserved. It's not just as a world apart then, but as a special part of a much larger public array of public lands, all of which are connected and in some ways, of their own ways, distinct, as all the parks that various people will be looking at this year on this podcast. The national parks are part of what makes us who we are as communities, citizens, and a part of the living world. Many presidents, philosophers, and writers have expressed our connection to the national parks, but perhaps Edwin C. Beers a National Park Service chief historian from 1981 to 1994, said it best. As we Americans celebrate our diversity, so we must also affirm our unity if we are to remain the one nation to which we pledge allegiance. Such great national symbols and meccas as the Liberty Bell, the battlefields in which our independence was won and our union preserved, the Lincoln Memorial, the Statue of Liberty, the Grand Canyon, Yellowstone, Yosemite, and numerous other treasures of our national park system belong to all of us, both legally and spiritually. These tangible evidences of our cultural and natural heritage help make us all Americans. So thank you for uh, visiting Yellowstone National Park with me this week and for the next three weeks. And do come back next week to learn about a potential threat to Yellowstone Park in the form of mining concessions in the public lands abutting the park. Until then, enjoy and protect a public land or park.